This episode is brought to you by Valora. Valora is a self-custody, mobile-first wallet, and the easiest way to send, swap, collect, and purchase digital goods on the Celo blockchain. Download the app and start exploring today at valoraapp.com forward slash empire. Welcome back to Empire. Uh, Jason's out in his honeymoon. Shout out, Jason, wherever you are. Hope you're having a good time. Garrett, uh, the man behind the scenes who does everything and makes all this happen, is here with us. Garrett, welcome to the show. You've, you've been on it. Uh, you, you are usually in the background and critiquing uh, our terrible takes and whatnot, making sure we don't say dumb stuff in the pod, but uh, it's great to have you. Welcome. Welcome back. Yeah, it's great to be on. I think I was on probably about six, eight months ago. So I've been on here twice, but yeah, always behind the scenes. I don't have to edit much, so you guys are super <laughs> smart, but it's, it's fun to be part of it and it's fun to be back on. That's awesome. Well, there's a lot to talk about. I feel like uh, there's a number of developments. Uh, why don't we just get straight into it? Um, should we first talk about NVIDIA and the fact that it just uh, had one of the biggest candles? Uh, in w- What I've seen is like it added, what, the entire market cap of ETH uh, after reported earnings yesterday. It was up like 26%, which is wild. So walk us through that. Yeah, abs- absolutely nuts. I mean, I'm not going to lie. I'm not somebody that follows this extremely closely, but like you said, NVIDIA is up over 200 billion after last night's earnings when they beat it. The big thing with NVIDIA is just there's been this huge trend of AI right now and they produce GPUs. And you talk about the last like more than a decade, it's been you have oil and now data is a new oil and GPUs are what enable that new compute economy. And that's why NVIDIA. Um, some people I was in a meeting this morning with our analysts and a lot of people think it's overhyped, um, maybe in the short term, but I'm, I'm pretty bullish on this whole um, AI sector. And it, you know, and it is, it's interesting because you see this with AI um, and you, and I think some people are like, okay, this is in the zeitgeist, it's becoming a bubble um, and comparing it to something like autonomous trucks where you had these companies like Too Simple and Nikola, the Nikola is the one with the fake truck demo uh, that came out um, and Embark and these are done through SPACs and you had 3D printing. I remember when I was in college, um, 3D printing was, was huge and everybody was like, I'm going to put my money into uh, 3D printing stocks. And at the time, honestly, that was like the outlet for crypto that people didn't know about crypto and it. It kind of disappeared and it, it's now though and coming back up in dental offices and like making teeth and then uh, i think 90 i heard 90 percent of hearing aids now use 3d printing so um it's pretty cool I, i'm curious your thoughts and like i know you're mostly a crypto investor but are you no, investing well, in, in ai i actually added nvidia like three weeks ago to my portfolio after i i saw uh, stan uh, two weeks ago after uh, i was uh stan druckenmiller was on the stone conference and he uh, he was in uh had a great interview and he mentioned NVIDIA, you know, and I, when, whenever Stan Miller talks, I listen. And, um, I, I have been adding my exposure in the public markets and I'm deploying a very unique strategy, uh, to capture yield, um, doing some instruments, not direct investing, but like more derivatives and, and type of instruments where like I get paid a coupon and I can, uh, I have the option, um, to buy it at a 30, like, you know, a strike, set 20 30 40 percent on the downside and so if the stock ever goes down below that i i, I settle it after a year like different maturities mm. and so my view on the market generally is i feel like a lot of it is um there's more downside here than upside uh every sort of i've been last two three weeks i've been spending just really listening to traditional capital capital allocators from bridgewater to stan grunkenmeller and, and a bunch of other folks feels to me like the like the consensus that I'm hearing from them is it, it, you're not getting paid enough to be long in the market right now. I mean, mm-hmm. we talk about like we're in a bear market, but look, assets rallied considerably since the beginning of the year. Like crypto's up, what, 80%? Yeah. Uh, the market's up 40%. Some names are, are much higher. Um, what is interesting though is like 
a lot of the rallying traditional markets is, is encompassed and 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 concentrated in very few names, especially in tech, like like you know Google, Amazon, uh, Facebook, um, Apple, stuff like Nvidia. Um, and so I think I just uh, I I want to be long in market, like long term, like five ten years. But I feel like there's there's more downside uh, right now, particularly mm-hmm. like you know just time and time again. I mean, I feel like people are really uh, set. I feel like most people are set to be disappointed when you think like, oh, the Fed's kind of like no longer going to hike, but inflation continues to be sticky. And like we keep moving the goalposts like, no, this is the last hike and this is the last hike. And so I think like across the board, I feel like um, particularly in the US, I think things are pretty expensive. And so I want to capture yield. And so a lot of these instruments pay a nice coupon of like 10, 15, 20%, even like I did mm-hmm. one with none of this financial advice, but like Coinbase, which I don't think is properly understood in the market. Like most people don't understand it. And so I feel like I always over the years have asked people, do you think that Coinbase over like uh, underperforms or uh, like outperforms something like Bitcoin? Because it could be a really capital efficient strategy to be long crypto. Um, so anyways, long story short, I have been spending more time in the public markets. Um and I'm not of the mind that, like, I don't want to be long right now, but I do yeah. want to capture yield. And there are ways to do that. Um, and this instrument that I'm referencing is a reverse auto call convertible. You know, it's like a long way of saying, like, I, <laughs> yeah. But anyways, uh, yeah, I I pay attention more. Than yeah. yeah, yeah, that's interesting. And I, I like the fact that, oh, well, you were talking about Coinbase right there. Um, mm-hmm. I, I do think, I mean, again, not financial advice i don't know but it is curious like how that would perform in the upside and really coming into this week and like this call i was just thinking about the markets and um honestly like even though there are movements and if you're deep in the tech there's constantly new innovations it does just feel like i was like santi how do you how do you manage during this time because it reminds me of 2018 19 um that like there's not a lot of price action everything every time the market goes up by 10 percent, it seems to come back down um there's a lot of like l1s and different tokens that are now not not hitting like their lows but you know, I don't know. There's, it seems like a little bit of lost momentum, um, and AI has more or less consumed a lot of people's attention. And you know, I, I even this is seen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go for it. I think this is the best time to look. Bear markets or 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 crabby markets or whatever you want to call them are, are quieter and allow you to really like just think about the the assets that you want to own. And one exercise that I've been doing recently is I look back and I. Of the things that I would have at the at sort of the and during the bull market, there were a couple assets that I, were, I wish I would have bought more of that. Mm. Uh, and those are the things that I just go back and one revisit what I want to own them today. And that exercise ultimately, you know, you look at the fundamentals and you could argue what are the fundamentals in crypto. But I think and someone asked me that and I told them that I talk about it during this podcast. And I think the fundamentals for me in crypto, like you know, a lot of it, a lot of crypto doesn't have product market fit. I get it, but I think the fundamentals that I look at are developer activity. Um, I think that is, is like uh, perhaps the most important thing in an open source context where you want to look at where developers are gravitating to and building. Um, and so, yeah, I just have a list of things that I, I go back and say, these are the assets that I'm really excited about that I wish I owned more in the bull market. I want to look back and say, would I want to own them today? And if so, then it's a great kind of like starting point of of looking at and, and, and like kind of calling the shopping list. Mm. Um but, but yeah, you know, I, I, I think, uh, you know, 
people are chasing certain narratives. I don't have a particular opinion on on AI. I, I play Chat GPT on the daily. I think it's quite useful. Um, you can make certain bets on it. And you know, I, this week alone, I was pitched three kind of crypto plus AI startups. Some one of which is particularly interesting. I'll probably end up investing in others, which are like not so much. But mm. yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, it, the, the more the, and the more important thing that I want to talk about, and I, is sort of this idea that I don't know. I think we'll look back and it's always I always come back to this like in five ten years, it's sort of like you know crypto is roughly a trillion dollar asset class with some inflation baked in, but nonetheless like one trillion, that's like absolute nothing in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, but it it survived for ten years plus. Uh, it's it's an interesting asset class, and so you've got to remember, like most allocators, haven't even touched this asset class, um, and a lot of things are really kind of lining up. Uh, I think uh, the regulatory activity happening in different jurisdictions, particularly Europe, Middle East, like places like Dubai, it's encouraging. Even in the U.S. as well, you have like you know, in you have elections coming up next year, right? And and crypto is is a important topic and i think in the context of innovation and and where the us wants to be on a geopolitical level and so ultimately i think um you know anyone that is listening today and has lost conviction in this space and has been around for like five six seven years like it's kind of important to like look back and say would you have thought that crypto have been so important in the election or so important in the public context mm. And and seeing like a lot of these brands build and particularly in the NFT space, like I just think that sometimes we forget about these things. Um, and you sort of have to pinch yourself and look back and say, yeah, I think we made a lot of progress. And price is one thing, and unfortunately, it's kind of the 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 thing that we most latch onto to understand if we made progress or not. But I don't think it's it, it's useful in many ways. Uh, I and and if you're going to look at price all day, you're going to miss. Uh, and you're going to spend too much time thinking about price and not not enough time looking at what's happening under the hood. And of course, we like to do it here, right? We talk about interesting developments. And so anyways, this is a good time for me to shut up and, and move on. From the <laughs> stuff. No, 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 it's really good. I, I think one thing that I'll, I'll probably describe wrong, but we just had Don Wilson on 1000X, which is a podcast that actually drops on the Empire feed every other week. He talks about how with Bitcoin um, is a negative convexity asset to him. Uh, he thinks it's one of the harder assets to trade. And that's because as the price goes up, as an investor looking at Bitcoin, there's actually more likely that it gets adopted wider throughout the world and the community and used as a store of value. But as price goes down, it actually like spirals downward, right? Because Bitcoin more or less right now is not necessarily a technology or something you build things on top of. It's a store of value. They're looking at other use cases where when you think about things in DeFi, um, that's not necessarily true, right? To me, the price is less directly... Um, connected to what's being built because you just have all these different projects being built on top. And I'll, I'll talk about it later, but it's just like Curve is doing a lot of fascinating things with um, having like safety and liquidations in their new lending protocol and they have a new Curve stablecoin. Um, there's a lot of innovations. And I, I think the last thing I'll add to this like little AI bit before we go on, because we are not an AI podcast, but I do think it'll be part of the future is that uh, I actually think it's amazingly bullish for crypto. So I think in like one way, um, when you think about audits, like that's a huge problem right now in crypto. I think that AI will come into this and can make it a lot safer. Now you can also have uh, 
you have AI bots that come in and try to exploit protocols. But I think more or less, it's going to be extremely positive and it's going to enable smaller teams to have that like built-in security. And I think on top of that, it's going to allow like for the proliferation of new projects because kind of like with Facebook, you think about how you have content coming out through users like me and you, but you also have like the Wall Street Journal posting on Facebook. Um, and with AI, it's just the proliferation. It almost makes the marginal cost of creating content free. But also when you think of content, like really that can just be code, right? At the end of the day, that's what it is. So I think if anything, we'll see more things pop up in crypto. Um, and, you know, I've been getting ready for a new podcast called Lightspeed. And one of the, the projects that I'm following or writers is uh, Ben Thompson with Stratechery. And he talks about um, a lot and how Airbnb for the first time commoditized trust. Uh, and by what he means with that is like when you were traveling before Airbnb was along, uh, you looked for the hotel that had the biggest brand because no matter how expensive it was or how sanitary, I say sanitary, how like um, less local it feel, felt or um, it didn't matter how great the hotel was, but you chose it because you trusted it and you couldn't really trust staying at someone's home. For the first time, Airbnb made that different where you could go and stay at people's homes. Um, and that was through the photos, through the ranking systems, um, by making it digitized. Um, and because of that, they basically disrupt the hotel chain. I think the same thing could be happening with um, crypto in that, like right now, we have trust in banks and certain neobanks and financial protocols. But for the first time with crypto, um, we're trying to disintermediate that trust. And hopefully AI can be part of that. Uh, my, my thesis for, for AI and crypto at that intersection is very simple, which is it's probably the only way to prove humanity. Yeah. And, and second to train data. I think the over time on um, blockchains are data rich. And so when you think about, you know, training a model with pristine data that is immutable recorded on a public blockchain accessible to everyone, that's quite useful to train these models over time. And so, you know, I think, uh, those two things, uh, make me interested in AI in the context uh, of crypto, but you know, we should be highly skeptical of people that are, you know, going to try to hype both crypto and AI. And so yeah. anyways, you said it best. We're not an AI <laughs> podcast. It is the AI pivot. Yes. Right. Uh, we're going to pivot to talk about AI all the time. <laughs> not, not really. Agreed. Well, maybe uh, let's move on to another topic that I think was, honestly, it's not really all over Twitter, but I, I do follow a lot of the people in the Solana community and it's something that came up and I think it connects with the broader theme of just how do you fund the development of public goods? So I'm going to give a super quick high-level overview. Um, I'll probably mess up the technicalities, but this is kind of what's going on. So Metaplex uh, is a Solana protocol that allows for the creation and minting of non-well NFTs, non-fungible NFTs. Um, it allows for auctions, the visualizing of NFTs in a standard way across wallets and applications. Um, and last time I heard, over 99% of Solana NFTs use Metaplex um, for that. So they have really dominated the NFT sector. Um, they came out with an announcement this week. So right now, it's not a it's a protocol, but it's not like a frozen protocol, and that it's not immutable at the moment. So uh, what Metaplex really does is metadata that's attached to these NFTs as well. So that's something that you want to freeze because you don't want to have one centralized, more or less company. They do have a token and are decentralizing, but in charge of that. Um, and this last update will introduce immutability or a way to get there um, to the token metadata. Um, to ensure that these key characteristics are preserved, but also introduce a network fee around like different changes and minting and swaps and um, different interactions that happen with these NFTs. So this kind of caused um, an outrage from a few people, other people understood, but it was like, I think the idea was 
Metaplex raised $46 million back in 2022. And this is actually after Metaplex spun out of, uh, I think, it was Solana Labs. So it started in Solana Labs, it spun it out, and then it raised $46 million, which I think is like the, the third biggest BC raise in the Solana ecosystem, like just from an individual project. And uh, I think people thought in general, this was going to be a public good. And you saw that with all these, the 99% of Solana NFTs adopting this standard. Um, but the issue is now that they're adding fees on top of this, um, people are like, okay, we're going to have to fork this, but you can't do that because Metaplex has an open, they have a license where it says it's open source, but you can't actually fork it similar to like Uniswap V3. Uniswap um, V3 yeah. yeah, exactly. Like their code. Um, and now like you have this program or this, uh, this standard that's been developed and adopted. Now it's, in, it's used by all these NFTs. It's adopted by the exchanges and also wallets. Um, and now you have this tax more or less that people are saying that they put on top. Now the Metaplex team would come out and say like, look, this isn't free to build. It's actually a lot of work to build and maintain this code. We need to have a way to have a business model. Um, others are coming out and saying this seems to be more of a way that somebody in web two might actually monetize this where you build the standard. I know Facebook's done this with some programming languages, and then you offer the services and products around that because you're kind of more or less best centered to do that. Um, and one of the big problems for this is like on Ethereum, you have the ERC-20 standard and the 721. I mean, that's built into the protocol. It goes through the AIP process. Um, Solana doesn't have these these standards yet. Um, so today, the program is just set by Metaplex, and that's what's become the standard. So um, I'm curious... Santi, one, I don't know if you have any thoughts on this particular um, issue. I will say that Metaplex actually tweeted earlier today um, that they're going to have, they are making a slight update based on community feedback, which is they're going to have no fees on like update, verify, freeze, and thaw. And that does matter because people are saying if you actually get charged fees on all these updates, well, some Solana NFTs, which are programmable, they might even update, um, say, twice a day based on day or night, or they could multiple times if it belongs to a game. Um, yeah, so Santi, I'm just curious what you view of this, but more or less, like really just the, the funding of protocol development and public goods and, and how you see that shaping out in crypto. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, like, I wonder, it's hard, like, once you, like, launch this, like, how to put it back in the bag in, in some capacity. Like, you know, if you're the Solana team, you kind of hatch this product project to, like, you know, come up with a standard for NFTs and, you know, you have to think like, how do you subsidize this? Because if this is going to, if this is going to hinder like NFT development in Solana, then that like degrades the interest in the broader Solana ecosystem of onboarding users. And it's a very difficult decision to go through this, but at the same time you want to, you know, public goods need to be funded in some capacity or I guess a quasi public good you're adding the taxation layer on top of it and so it's really challenging i uh, you know in some ways uh i think it's very difficult because you look at what ha what is in ethereum and you don't have this problem mm. and i think that really becomes even more adds another layer of difficulty when you're trying to tell projects and users that they're going to be taxed for something that they're usually not used to being taxed on in other in other ecosystems like ethereum and so this is why i think it, it becomes an even greater problem right of, of competition and really low barriers to entry right if you're a new nft project like this actually changes the landscape of it and i want to you know i think it's important and it makes it incredibly difficult. So I don't have a good answer to all of this other than mm. I did hear the pitch for Metaplex when they were raising. I wasn't terribly impressed. 
to be honest. I think they raised too much money, and I don't think it was my. I wasn't particularly impressed by the team. Um, so that's just my two cents. And you know, people are going to look at this and say he's being critical of Solana yet again. I, I'm not. <laughs> like, I just wasn't impressed by Metaplex. Uh, and so I hope that they resolve this for because I, I want to see. You know, I think the NFT ecosystem of Solana has been flourishing in many ways, right? Mm. Um, you have what was that huge uh, project that launched like couple like one month ago? Was it uh, on Solana? Yeah, on Solana. Oh, oh, you're talking about Mad Lads, probably. Yeah, maybe. yeah, exactly. Right. I mean, yeah. imp- hugely impressive, right? So I want to see more of that, and I hope that this doesn't uh, get in the way of the momentum that you're seeing the Solana ecosystem. Yeah, I don't think people can say you're bearish, uh, Solana, because I think we actually had an episode two weeks ago that I think the title was like <laughs> Santi now bullish on Solana or something like that. I, I mean, over I, the years of like I've talked about, like I've been yeah. on the podcast, I've been critical of like people in the Ethereum camp yeah. being super siloed and like, and then time to time again, we've had Anatoly and Ben, um, you know, here I've been on many podcasts with Anatoly. I, I, I really respect how they build out in the open and they take criticism in a very constructive way and you know, made modifications to their fee system and a bunch of other things. And so, yeah, I think this is, I don't, I don't have any issues. Uh, I think they're going to figure this out in some way, shape or form. Um, yeah. The nice thing about crypto is when you have these type of things, people are always constantly looking for stuff that is trying to be too greedy or just not working correctly. So, you know, of course you have to respect certain license and whatnot, but uh, yeah, it's not to say you can't build another standard. A hundred percent. Yeah. I feel the same way. I, I don't really have like, any strong feelings on this either way. It was curious to me, like, and this is, is happening all throughout crypto or did, but like when you have a $46 million uh, VC raise, th- there's nothing bad about that, but it does does make you wonder, like if you're a VC, like you want to get a 10 times return on that money. So like the ecosystem obviously wasn't like, hey, I wonder how they're going to make this at the time. Like I bet that happened. I don't actually know the date, but like during the bull market when, and everything is moving so fast. And one of the cool things about Solana and a lot of these other ecosystems is they do move so fast and that's one of their core advantages. But you can see an issue in like scenarios like this where that can actually be a bad thing. And that lends to like Ethereum's credibility as it moves so slow. Um, in some ways, like maybe L2s do fragment liquidity and they fragment users, et cetera. But I, I do think it's pretty cool in that you can, it allows Ethereum to still innovate um, in a very quick way without having to do that at the protocol level. And with that, you're not going to have issues with this. And on, I'm curious if Kevin Owaki, if I'm saying his name right, he started- um, Yeah, from Gitcoin. Get up, yeah, Gitcoin. Have you seen uh, his proposal he made? It's called EIP 6969 Classic. Not that one. I I haven't seen. I saw some post about it just because yeah. they were memeing it. But what is it about? <laughs> it's always fun how they come up with uh, names and terminology in crypto. But so he wants to uh, basically find a way to fund protocol development um, continuously. And so it's EIP 6969 looking to implement contract secured revenue. Um, on Ethereum L2s. And all that really means is developers get revenue when people use their contracts. Mm-hmm. This isn't like the first time this has come around. I think no, that no, Nier's been trying to implement this. Um, Canto, mm-hmm. which is, uh, I believe that's a Cosmos. Yeah, it's like the they class like uh, milestone-driven funding. Like you've seen biotech and has been proposed with some sort of smart contract mechanism. The issue is always the Oracle and agreeing on. But I guess in this case, it's tied to like usage of the smart contract. But anyone can- the bend- gas. Yeah, yeah, the gas yeah. used. Yeah, which is yeah, it's not a yeah, it's pretty interesting, I guess. What the one thing I do like about it is he's like, okay, don't do this at L one, which I think at some point people try to do. He's like, let's just try this on individual L twos, and at that point, it's like whether this is a good idea or a bad one. It's like go ahead, go experiment, and you can actually do that now that there is L twos. So I think that that's kind of cool. Um, yeah, but yeah, there, there's just been a lot recently with like, and we won't get into this this week, I don't think, but. 
talking about tokenomics and um, sharing revenues with token holders and like uh, the, the money that do, the revenue that does go to the protocol, like that sh should that be used by um, by vote to be used to say make acquisitions or BD deals or should some of that be like automatically placed into a fund that's used to fund development going forward? Um, there's so many questions there, and obviously I think I think it's just almost impossible to make these decisions with a completely uh, decentralized mm -hmm. protocol. It's extremely hard. Um, so I am yeah. curious to see like where, Look, that, I mean, where I, that goes. I gotta say, like uh, it's it's you've now seen this redemption arc by a lot of VCs. Like I saw Vichol from Electric tweet like, "Oh wow, like uh, like uh, you know the tokenomics of Curve are really really mm -hmm. great." And like I was a part of that. I helped design that back in the day. And Didn't know that. Remember and when it launched, like the token dumped so much, and people were looking at the emission schedule and all this stuff. And they're like, "This is a terribly designed project." Like, God, like it was. The, the thing about tokenomics is it's really difficult to kind of construct them. You have certain, like, I guess, precedent and case studies that you can look at, but, you know, you can overly engineer stuff. At the end of the day, like, I've said this time and time again, like, no amount of financial engineering and tokenomics is going to solve for a crappy product. Curve is a killer product. Like, it really begins and ends there. Yeah. Your margin of error and leeway as it relates to constructing tokenomics is marginal when you don't have a good product. Like Curve just has a phenomenal project, a, a product which is started with like for like swaps of stable coins and then you extend that to other type of tokens. And it, it's just one of the like backbones of DeFi. And, and it was really the first example or one of the first examples of why DeFi is more powerful and efficient than CeFi. For all the critics out there like Sam, SBFs of the world that were saying, oh, you know, nothing really works in DeFi. It's really inefficient. Building, you know, everything is much more efficient in the CFI and, you know, like order book models and all this crap. I'm like, go, okay, trade stable coins and Coinbase and then tell me how that's better. Your slippage mm -hmm. versus versus curve. And, th and so that was like really powerful. And I think, you know, I, I, and this is an area I do spend a lot of time on, like, trying to design tokenomics, especially like, you know, are airdrops good customer acquisition uh, strategies? Are they going to be really expensive over time? Um, uh, and so, but I think that there might be more, you know, this might come in handy over time. And so my, my best, uh, my best recommendation to a team would be allow yourself the flexibility to like adjust certain things of the tokenomics over time. You know, a project like Uma, for instance, used, I think, their token allocation to the community and whatnot as it is managed by the DAO in a very strategic way. They would do like campaigns and, you know, try to test stuff and see what works and what doesn't work. And, you know, retaining a lot of flexibility, which is difficult because they'll say, wait a minute, the community's going to like look, look at what happened to Arbitrum. You know, it's like people freaking yeah. out because the DAO was like taking certain decisions and they weren't, you know, and it created some sort of controversy. And so, you know, anyways, uh, it's it's difficult, uh, but I think the most important thing is I think you want to bake in as much flexibility as you can over time on the token omics because you kind of don't really know your user today, and yeah, you don't really know how the project's gonna look in five years time. I mean, one year time, let alone five years. Right? So it's so early that fixing tokenomics like in stone and codifying them, I know it's been a standard, might be controversial, but I always say, you know, if you can allow yourself and give yourself some buffer to then use those tokens in a more strategic way for customer acquisition, for M&A activity, for whatever, then do it, right? For funding, right? So, yeah. 
Yeah, I'm sure you look at token distribution at times when you have new projects, like what percentage of tokens are going to the team, to investors, the community, et cetera. And, and that more or less is kind of a fix, at least at the beginning. But I, I'm curious if you see an amazing product, something like Curve, yet you don't hate, but maybe you strongly disagree with the tokenomics that were set at the, at the beginning of the project. Would that dissuade you from investing? And just because I, you know we're, we're still so early and if that product works, I guess the question is, can you just almost count on the team, the community to then update and change those tokenomics? Yeah, I believe that. I think you can change it. Example of that was being part of the Wi-Fi uh, proposal mm-hmm. to mint, what was it, 7,000 or another, you know, uh, another big chunk of Wi-Fi to the new team. Mind yeah. And so I think that's a good example, right? Um, ultimately, uh, this space is very early. And, and um, so, yeah, I think the focus should really be on building a great project, a product. Uniswap mm-hmm. didn't have a token for such a long time. Many yeah. projects shouldn't have a token early on. Um, and, yeah. and, and, you know, just focus on building a good project. Because once you launch a token... It's it's essential. It's important in some capacity, right? From a competitive standpoint, I think Uniswap is kind mm-hmm. of like boxed in and had to launch one. Um, but it adds a layer of distraction to to the team. And so most founders and founding teams end up really focused on that, on the token, yeah. and, and and the price can be demoralizing and, and adds a layer of complexity that is it's sort of you know difficult for for most teams to be remain focused while they have a token so mm. yeah yeah and i mean 2017 18 when i was like first starting to get into crypto it was probably 2017 i was just reading probably spent like 500 dollars on eth i remember like the big thing at the time was like one how's it going to scale because l2s weren't a thing but it's also there was like an unlimited supply of eth like there was no means to ever reduce the supply but i just think the fact that even like East tokenomics are more or less, you know, slowly, but do change over time. And I don't know if MEV burn will become a thing or not. I I think if that can happen, it's just kind of silly to think that some of these protocols that also find product market fit, like, won't, don't have the potential to change if the community decides. Because we'll we'll talk about here in in a second, you know, more or less, at the end of the day, everything is social consensus. And if community behind it believes that something is better for the protocol in the long term, I think they'll probably do it. Yeah, you can, to, to kind of wrap this up, you can find product market fit with terrible token economics, mm-hmm. you yeah. you know what I mean. You can, because if you have great pro, if you if you have great product market fit, you could probably change your tokenomics. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, big fan of that. There's actually a big discussion going on, and uh, you know, Blockworks Research team, which we have over here. Um, if you don't follow, check them out. I'll put a link in the show notes. Um, but it's talking about tokenomics as well. Uh, we'll save this for another time, but they're talking about what is money. And if, if like Curve, for example, you have their tokens that are incentivizing liquidity and you have this whole bribe system built on top through convex, et cetera, that starts to look like money, like in a way. But like our, you know, this is the whole our tokens equities. Is it a claim to the cash flow underneath? Um, or is it something else and something new? And I, I think that's something that's evolving and there's no real answer. And I also don't like when people are like, is it money, is it not? Like, let's just admit that there's a range of outcomes here. And there's something like the US dollar, which is probably like the most moneyness, if that's probably even a word. But then you have Apple stock. And if like they made an acquisition, they can use their Apple stock, they'll pay in cash and they'll pay in stock. They can also borrow against their shares. So in a way that's has a foreign money. Well. Apple stock is very valuable currency. Yeah. And so is NVIDIA stock. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I agree 100%. Valora is the ultimate wallet for exploring the Celo ecosystem. Easily manage over 50 crypto assets and over 30 different dApps for swapping, sending, and managing your assets 
all from your mobile phone. The world is mobile first, and Valora believes that crypto should be too. Their global app is localized in over 13 different languages in over 100 countries, giving crypto explorers like you a simple and accessible way to send payments, purchase digital goods, and access a suite of decentralized financial services. If you want to see real-world use cases for crypto, Valora's in-app dApps page is the easiest way to access a growing list of the latest refi and DeFi applications on the Celo blockchain. Download the app and start exploring today at valoraapp.com forward slash empire. That's Valora, V-A-L-O-R-A, app, A-P-P, valoraapp.com forward slash empire. Let's go on to the next topic, which relatively related. It's Vitalik's new paper called Don't Overload Consensus. Um, there's a lot going on here. I think it's inspired a bit by, so Stake Deeth is obviously becoming more important, important especially with the last uh, Chappelle upgrade and now uh, LSTs, uh, liquid staking tokens, used to be LSTs, but uh, we had to change that, um, are becoming more and more important to the ecosystem, especially like LST5, which is involving, instead of like putting ETH and borrowing against ETH, why not put an LST, which is staked ETH behind there, because you can actually be earning yield uh, as your collateral is locked up. Um, and part of that is eigenlayer, and, and it's taking ways, how can we... Um, basically utilize ETH to a greater extent. So like can the validators that are securing their ETH on ETH L1 then use that same ETH to basically restake and secure another project or another layer, et cetera. Um, and that's kind of catching a lot of steam. And it's not, it doesn't sound all that different, honestly, from like Cosmos's or the Atom Hub shared security, but it is, is probably more flexible. Um, and Vitalik more, more or less writes in here about a situation that you could have these L1 ETH stakers who are also, say, securing an L2 with that same ETH. Some hack occurs on that L2. And does that actually give economic incentives to the L1 to then roll back the chain? Because you could say you have like an Arbitrum, let's just say it absolutely gets huge and the majority of transactions happen there. If you did have a big hack, like the DAO hack, um, could it come to a point where you're going to have the validators on the L2, which are also the L1, say, hey, we need to fork this and roll the chain back. Um, and he's saying we ought to be careful. And I've, I've seen like a quote or two, um, which is like the social consensus is the ultimate layer of consensus. Uh, one more, which, you know, is a little bit more dark. Financial innovation will not be hindered by social pressure, which honestly in crypto, that's probably pretty true. It's like you have yeah. stake derivative upon stake derivative. So I'm just curious, what do you think about this situation in this article? I would encourage people to go back to that Eigenlayer podcast that we had. Um, um, the founder, I had a BD. All throughout that podcast, I just messaged Jason. and was like, this sounds like re-hypothecating security. And I don't think, I'm not, my brain's not, my small brain is not prepared to think about all the risks and increased surface area that that creates. And I I do worry about that. Sante, um, you can't do it. None of us can. <laughs> I think we're all in trouble. No, I mean, I love financial innovation. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, as someone who spends a lot of time in DeFi, but I am reminded of the global financial crisis and sometimes when you're not pricing risk correctly, it becomes a problem. And I think there's a lot of issues. I think the more important one that you just mentioned, which is the validator set and the incentives of different validators and if it's highly concentrated. I, I, I do worry. I don't think it's just like Cosmos, actually. I think Cosmos is a shared security model, but it, I think architecturally, uh, people can correct me here, but it's quite different than what mm-hmm. uh, the value proposition of Eigenlayer, uh, which is like, yeah. I think there's a important nuance. I don't know how to crystallize it just yet, but I, I just think it's it's different and riskier doing it 
in the Ethereum ecosystem the way out how Eigenlayer is doing it than versus what you're having Cosmos. That's my hypothesis. People can tell me if I'm wrong or not. And yeah. I would encourage, this is probably something that we can have a more uh, deeper discussion with people that are smarter on this topic. Uh, maybe bring up people in the Cosmos ecosystem and also Eigenlayer and some other folks to talk about this. But I do worry. Uh, succinctly, <laughs> rehypothecating stuff can work, but security is not something that I want to mess around with. Because if you lose security, you lose everything. And I want to be cautious of how we do that. And I would almost kind of shut it down for the sake of I don't want shit to blow up. Yeah. Shut it down. You just, just, just like, guys, let's say yeah. it in another pocket, you know. Let's yeah. decentralize sequencers. Let's focus on other things. But this is something that, like, yeah, you push it too far. And, you know, you know that, like, fuck around and find out. Yeah. This, this is not one of those. That I wanna, this is one of those. Yeah. You just don't, don't want to get there. Yeah. I think it's super interesting. And honestly, like you said, we just need to have another podcast on this and we can explore like more, more in full. Jerome from Eigenlayer, um, he, he tweeted out in response to that article and like yeah, he funny. gave he gave 30 points. He said, hey, don't build complex financial primitives on restaking. They can spiral out. And um, yeah, I don't know how you're going to stop anyone in a permissionless system from doing that. And like it uh, doesn't exactly sound that realistic at all. I, I do want to add just to get like maybe a concept for people are thinking like what's another way this could happen and it totally put in a comment he's like what about a protocol that bribes eth validators to censor a specific kind of transaction like an l2 fraud proof so as you know optimistic and validity uh roll-ups they have ways that you can prove it to the l1 and one of those is fraud proofs for optimistic roll-ups in this type of situation you could also you'd actually have the validators censor that l2 fraud proof because it's not in their economic incentive so yeah yeah i might have to watch the big short santi it's like maybe people need to read the big short not that that's going to happen because of eigen later but honestly it's a it's a great book and it might give you some insight on like what can happen in these scenarios the more the both exciting and really challenging thing about crypto is that if there is an incentive people are going to build it people are going to and people in your and you're going to attract people so we can pontificate here all day long about how bad it is and Vitalik can have an opinion on it and he has carries a lot of weight but at the end of the day, you know, things are going to be built. And, you know, I don't think this this, this post will stop Eigenlayer, uh, Eigenlayer from, from building. The question is, does it get enough traction? And so, yeah, welcome to the world of permissionless innovation. Yeah, no, well well said, Santi. Um, Should we talk about the ledger stuff? I think uh, I, I actually was on and spent a lot of time. Uh, I was off last week at... I, I did cut it short because I was I was like, all right, I think I need to listen into what the Ledger team, they hosted a, a public Twitter space to, to talk about their social recovery upgrade and they did a firm parade upgrade. Um, and and so I'll just kind of hash the, the big level, high level stuff. So Ledger is uh, hardware, like a, a HSM, like a hardware stream. Like they have this device, it's probably one of if not the most widely used like hardware wallet in the space probably has over six million wallets or hardware wallets that they've sold over time um and and they launched a recent firm grade upgrade for their latest kind of devices called was it the lighter nano x mm, i think uh, so but not 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 the nano s which is a earlier model but the nano x the newer ones that they're shipping out people noticed that they had a new firmware and then they kind of said, oh, yeah, we're going to announce it. And then they kind of that forced them to announce. 
all this really is is they say, listen, a lot of people struggle with they lose their keys. They don't know. They, they've asked us. They claim that a lot of users have asked them to kind of build a solution to recover their keys in case they lose them. Right? You usually have them jot it down a piece of paper or whatever, uh, and then you you know some people lose it and you know anyways. So they said, how do we onboard more people? And so they launched this social recovery thing, which apparently basically sh- cuts the seed phrase in three. It sends you keep one, and then it sends one to them, and then or they're using like some like custodians where they're securely they're encrypting part of the key and then sending it out to someone. And then and that's of course, but so many people in the community say, wait, wait a minute. The whole point of a hardware wallet is that it, the key is never exposed. It never leaves the device. It gets generated and then it never leaves. Now you're telling us you can do a firm grade upgrade and this can happen. Like, wait a minute. That, that just completely changes the, the game, right? And so, yeah, it was it was pretty controversial. I think it was one of the worst PR stunts that I've seen in a while. Yeah, uh, yeah. French-like, I guess. And so I was on the call in the Twitter space and I said, guys, like, can you just walk us through like what point what at what point in time did you allow for this for a firmware upgrade firmware upgrade to kind of allow for you guys or whatever or someone especially to, to expose the keys right and so so um i want to say shame on us because we should have paid more close attention to this and asked these questions way before because apparently and my intuition was when i asked him this question that this was possible way before right and so mm. it was right and so they claim like yeah we we're you're always trusting ledger the company not to deploy uh some sort of firm firmware upgrade that allows for this but it is pos- hypothetically possible right a rogue you know they could just do this right they could be mm. and so um of course ledger is based in france and so you're, you're trusting them but you're and so their their device is closed source. It's not open source, and so yep. because they have these NDAs with the people that are designing these chips, so you're trusting them. There's just no backdoor and whatever. So, uh, yeah, it was it was a pretty interesting. It it is an interesting discussion in the community. Like, what do you do? Do you one this recovery system? You have to do KYC. If you lose your keys, you have to go through KYC. And then if so, you can reconstruct the key. Uh, then the CEO admitted that, of course, the question is, well, hypothetically, if someone like an AI agent like pretends to be you, passes KYC, mm. and reconstruct your keys, and then just steal your funds. Or, you know, like a state agent goes to ledger and says, yeah, I want to access like Garrett's keys like right, right about now. And yeah. that's it, right? And so... And it was all these kind of attack vectors. And so yeah, they conceded. He's like, yeah, this is a problem. So anyways, there is some insurance to this solution. It's like covered up, covers up to like 50K, which is tells you like what this, like why, like who this product is for. Um, so yeah, it was uh, a bit of a ramble there, but I think it's, uh, you know, it's always, I think it, it's interesting to then think about how do you secure your crypto is it good for the for some subset of users? Probably, right? Less yeah. sophisticated ones that have maybe less than fifty k, or just get comfortable with all this stuff. But um, yeah, I don't know if you have a reaction to all of this. Yeah, I, I think that was a great summary, and yeah, it was definitely super heated the last two weeks. I think 
what gets me is that I don't think people that are going to have one, like probably that less than 50,000 mark. So let's just say anywhere from zero to 10,000, maybe on average um, user, and also someone that's going to want to split and shard their key and have someone else with social recovery is going to be using a ledger or uses a ledger today. Like I just more or less yeah. think that person is going to be like on Coinbase or some other service. So like they're going after a user that I don't even think that might have be like one percent of their audience, and that's the main thing that I don't get. I mean, the PR was a failure. I think they're going after the wrong customer. Like, come out with a new product. But honestly, I don't know any friends that aren't really into crypto that want to store their own private keys and not have it. They don't want it to be touched by anyone. They're the yeah, ones that get a. They're the ones that want to get a ledger. The people that are like, I need help with my seed trades. Like, I understand that. Like, I feel that way a lot. But yeah. those people don't. They don't want a ledger. Like, they'll use Coinbase. They'll use Coinbase Ball. They'll do two FA. Or they'll do something like I have Argent on my phone, which has social recovery. I mean, you don't want to put a ton of money there, but it's just like, I don't know. I, I think they're building for an invisible customer that like maybe will be a thing, but not, I wouldn't have launched on this device. And I know you have to like, I think accept the update uh, for this to, to go live. But I know you said also like there is like an attack vector that already exists in there. And I saw Hasib talk about, which honestly is above my head, but he went into like, there has to be some way to update the device in the sense that when you add new blockchains or like, Ethereum used to have one type of signature. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have to update it, but it's just the communication. Always, terribly. Uh, uh, yeah. I think it was a big wake-up call to everyone in the community. That's why I shame on us. Because if the firmware upgrade, they, they're able to do that, right? To support new blockchains and, and you know, there's like, they need to do a security patch. Like, ultimately, you're trusting them to do the correct and secure firmware upgrade. And so, I think... Uh, a lot of folks that I follow that are experts in security said, you're kind of like, what's the option? Never do the firmware upgrade, but you also, you know, but at the same time, like there will be over time, some upgrades that are pretty critical that I think the, the proposal that a lot of people are saying is just, just come up with two different hardware wallets. One, which has this social recovery thing, you, you're buying it, maybe you buy it at cost and then you, you have to pay a subscription fee for this recovery feature. And then another one that is just, you can do these upgrades, but you're just like, you're not ever like, you know, it's not possible. And as again, you have to trust their guarantees. You will never be, you know, in a position to, to expose the key and chart, like to, you know, be part of the social recovery thing. But again, I think everyone is now has woken up or is waking up this idea that at the end of the day, you are trusting a company to not do an upgrade that allows your key to leave the device in some way. Hmm. Yeah, and you're at that point, like, what do you what do you do if you really want to be that safe? You're like, you can write it down on a piece of paper or remember it in your head, right? Like, not using it. No, yeah, you can generate, like, I guess, a, a, a you know, wallet uh, offline or a Yeah, yeah, but uh, but uh, again, for Bitcoin, more straightforward. But if you want to interact on chain and do some stuff on yeah, chain, so you know, for for like a smart wallet, like a for, for a smart chains, like, it's just difficult. Yeah. So I'm an investor in one key, which is Seed mentioned was close. You shout out to them. And like, you know, I'm not endorsing any project. Uh, I do I use a number of wallets, but you know, at the end of the day, like the name and security is a Horcrux model. Use different hardware wallets, you know, separate your funds, um, assume that any one of those can at some point be compromised and you'll be okay. You lose some funds, but not all of them. And I think that's generally the way you think about risk. Never uh, Sam, uh, shout out, by the way. Um Sam Zell, one of the legendary, not the most legendary real estate investor out there, passed away uh, um, a few days ago. And I was listening to a few of his podcasts, uh, one in Capital Allocators, and uh, I read also 
uh, his book and reread his book. And, you know, the best investors always tell you risk. You never do anything that can kill you because you can't even be lucky if you're dead. And mm-hmm. at the end of the day, I think this is how you think, think about security in the same way that you think about risk, generally speaking, which is as you're investing your capital and securing your capital, especially in this world of crypto, which can be your own custodian, you know, you, you just use multiple solutions, like never have one hardware wallet, use a Gnosis safe, like, you know, where you have three of five or two of three, you know, keys, different keys that, that are signing a transaction, you know, and you can use all three different hardware, four different hardware, or grid plus, you know, uh, one key, a uh, ledger and a treasure with a 25 words, not 24, because there's a known vulnerability. So, you know, like, yeah, at the end of the day, like, this is, um, this is, this tells you how early we are. <laughs> I was about to say the same thing. I was like, everything you're saying is, like, is so true. Like, God damn it. Like, anyone that is listening to this and doesn't think that we're early and two, that crypto is easy. Like, folks, sorry to cut it, but it's not. We're early and it's difficult. And this is why we get, and this is the asymmetry. Yeah. You hope. Like, Naval has a great tweet, which is, if, you are, if you're in this space and you don't think that you're going to be immensely compensated for being a beta tester for all this stuff, and you're willing to ride it out and see kind of the local tops and bottoms, then go chase something else. Yeah, Not all here for obviously, like, seeing the... Like, I'm not, I'm not like, intimating, like, we're only here for like hundred X and like, that's it. But, but there's a lot of risk and, and you've no. got to believe in the technology and the impact that it can have. And you know, ultimately there's really smart people here. And that's to me why I, I'm excited. The minute that I don't feel intellectually stimulated by this space, I'll leave mm. and yeah. I'll go do something else. I feel the same way. I mean, it's like, it's like working for a seed stage or a series A company in a way. And that like, you don't go there for the salary that you're getting paid. Like you're going there because you believe you believe in the space you like. And a big part of that is like as an investor, you know this. Like, um, crypto does have some product market fit in certain areas, but like you're investing, yeah, you're yeah. investing in the, you're investing Look, in the yeah. team at the get go. And what? there are so wow. many smart people in this space. I, I'm I'm just I tweeted this uh, two days ago, and because I'm tired of like all these stupid people, mostly from VC, that are pontificating like crypto has no product market fit. I'm like, listen, guys, like stop, right? Because it is, how, in my, my, my tweet was like, okay, how is this any different? If you don't like NFTs or meme coins or, D, or finance, DeFi, because you call, because you think that the artist sucks or that DeFi doesn't work or it's too complicated or whatever, how is that any different from all, when you look at e-commerce, for instance, especially in the early days, people are like, I hate some of the crappy products that are sold on Amazon or online, right? Does that make Amazon, PayPal, Stripe bad companies without product market fit because maybe you don't like anything that's sold there? Absolutely not, right? They've created the ability to buy anywhere, anytime, all the time, right? And so crypto in a similar way has now opened that same possibility to everyone, right? Because you're sort of transcending a lot of friction points that the internet had, which is it never allowed you to move money the same way that you process information. And so now you're extending that consumer preference, which is now, you know, you have created digital property and you've allowed creators that really appreciate, especially in NFT realm, to, to sell their art and prove the scarcity of that to the end customer. And so ultimately, if you don't find anything you like today, I guarantee you it's going to be something you like in five, 10 years. It's like Amazon started with books. 
There's people who don't like books. But at some point, they have now bought something from Amazon because it's the largest company in the world, right? By, you know, headcount or whatever. And so, you know, what I'm trying to say is I think we do have product market fit, very much so. And, and, and you're seeing it with a number of different realms and verticals, right? And, and you're going to continue to see that with gaming and all this stuff. And even though it's inefficient, even more, right? It's think about that, right? It's like, if you, there's a great post, we're going to talk about Fred Wilson later on. I, I don't know if it was Sam or someone else that says, if people are willing to go through like hoops and barbed wire to enter this space because they yeah. want to buy an NFT, like, how is that not part of our space? Like, you know, and, and Chris Dixon from A16Z talks about, you know, the, the hobbyists and pay attention to hobbyists because those are the guys that are early or the, and, and, and the hobbyists like are tinkering with technology and it's never easy, but, but they're so passionate about it and obsessed with it. And that's, you see a lot of hobbyists. We're all hobbyists in crypto right now. And, and that I think is a hallmark of strong product market fit. And, and so ultimately I'll go one-on-one anyone that wants to contest the fact that crypto doesn't have product market because it, they are totally off base here, you know, mm. totally off base. Yeah. And those people tinkering are voting with their time, right? Like they're, it's because they truly Absolutely. believe in something and they're the ones Absolutely. pushing stuff forward. I, I couldn't agree more. It, it does remind me a little bit of, of the, I mean, I know everyone does this con, uh, comparison. It's just a little cliche, but like the early, the early internet, like computers, all of that, like the first computers were the size of a room. Right. And they're actually like in the internet. And it costs around. like, they were so incredibly expensive. Who knows? Yeah, and, and like the point of, that people made the internet for was like ARPANET and then also past then um, in the like World Wide Web was just to get information and collaboration between like academics and like the government, right? Like that's how they saw what the use case was. And it wasn't until you had things like the World Wide Web and the browser, like that was a huge moment, right? And the GUI on the computer, you just had all these things and then eventually you had broadband and it's like all these little things that enabled like something so much bigger. And oh. part of that's also oh. mobile and I, I, I'm... I'm slowly getting mobile filled. Like I'm not there yet, but on like how important mobile could be to crypto. Um, and that, yeah. And like Solana is going down that route to some extent, but like, I think everyone knew this except me, but I saw a stat yesterday and I was like, I think it's a, a, when you're looking at gaming revenue, there's like 50 billion a year on like devices, computers, et cetera. Um, a hundred billion a year on your phone, mobile, mobile games. Yeah. So it's like twice yeah. as big. I, I had no idea. So yeah, I think that's a huge moment for crypto. That's coming. I mean, it just, it just makes it right. I mean, if you have something on the go, and is you're carrying it with you, you do so much more, right? Um, but you know, this is the other thing, like time to come again. I was just in a conference here and uh people talk about like speculation. And this is something that like comes up over and over. It's like all especially with meme coins now, just oh you know, it's all speculation. This is the casino and look, there's a whole industry like Las Vegas that is built on in Macau that is built on gambling. Now, I don't have an opinion on that i just again it's consumer preference like there is a subset of people who like to do this like why not allow them to do that in a more transparent context and, and this is the thing like i don't have an opinion on anything other than i believe that if something can operate in a transparent system it will inherently be better than a, a closed black box system like full stop so no matter what you do no matter what, not to say that it's this, this transparent system is going to be perfect. There are trade-offs to privacy and a number of things, but you always invariably, will, I will always choose a transparent system, whether it's financialization of X, Y, or Z, or interacting in, a, in an open, transparent system will be more efficient, 
will ultimately benefit the consumer way more, way more than a closed system. And so you're already seeing that in, in across a number of, uh, of things, right? And people will benefit. The, the, ultimately, the people that benefit the most are creators, if you're an NFT artist, or a developer that is willing to extract more value for their contribution relative to a handful of investors that had privileged access to certain deal flow and have capitalized on the huge rise of tech and software as a service and, and you know social media, like all these huge companies have only benefited a subset of people. And and now, you know, you're building in the open and it and it and it freaks and scares a lot of people and right yeah. I get it. Yeah, I get it. Like I get it. Like no surprise. But uh yeah, it's really exciting to see in real time. Couldn't couldn't agree more. And it's great because it also comes at a really interesting time of geopolitical chips and uh this idea that, you know, people can now work from home and move freely and now capital moves freely too and startups can work remotely and it's it's I think uh an incredible transformation and crypto is really at the center of empowering so much and so but that's never to say it's perfect. It will never be perfect. So we should always be skeptical, but the more the more you try this stuff, I think the more excited you get about how crypto fits in so many different huge, slow transformational trends that have been happening over the last 20 years and, and, and are going to continue to reshape this world in a very meaningful way. Yeah. You know, we started with this podcast talking about NVIDIA going up by 200 billion, which is like roughly the size of Ethereum. But I think like one of the things that also shows like the power of the community and like what's actually building there, regardless of what the price is, is just how much crypto and Ethereum is mentioned in everyday life through politics. Like when you think about like um, even Biden coming out, like latest speech, you see it everywhere. And it's just like something that's uh, people yeah. don't, the more you talk about it, the more important it is. That he, talked, he talked about like like tax loopholes. And I was like, wait a minute, everyone's at, first of all, no one has got gains this year. <laughs> Second of all, I'd love to know what I'd love to know what those are because everything happens on chain. So yeah, good luck trying to like convey taxes in this space. You know, they can't ignore it though. I think that's the point. Like they just they can't ignore it, and there's enough out there um, that it's popping up everywhere, regardless of what the price is. So I, I think this goes nicely just um, into Fred Wilson's new article, um, yeah, yeah. freedom to innovate. And um, Santi, do you wanna do you wanna do this, or do you want me to go for it? Uh, go for it. You do way better summaries than I do, sir. <laughs> No, well, I'm making this one short. I think I ramble. Um, but Fred Wilson came out with an article. I think it was I think it was yesterday. Um, and it, and I, I just took out little bits, but it, it kind of starts off and it says, back in 2014, uh, USV. So Fred Wilson, is. I think he was one of the founders at USV, which is Union Square Ventures, um, one of the top VC funds. It says, got subpoenaed by the New York State Department of the Financial Services over uh, their Web3 investing activities. And now he's fast forwarding today. And he said, I was reminded of that moment yesterday when a quarterly call with our limited partners, we were asked if the regulatory pressure in Web3 um, in the U.S. would result in us cutting back our Web3 investing, uh, to which he responded, when they want to shut it down, I say double down. He said, the most powerful technologies send waves of fear through the establishment, and you see the fear in their eyes and invest in the cause of that fear. I'm not like trying to be cultish because it's like when, as I was saying that I felt like a cult leader, but honestly, it's super powerful. And I think it's amazing that Fred Wilson has been extremely respected in the space in VC for a long time, not way outside of crypto. And he, he was, he got into crypto and whatever it was probably early, but I've heard him a lot in 2017. Yeah. I mean, the he was, fact he was that a pro, one of the first investors in Coinbase. I think he returned the fundamentals so on just the Coinbase investment a lot. That's pretty, yeah, pretty good place to start. And you can obviously just see the conviction. So anyways, I thought that was exciting and I, I'm seeing it pass around crypto right now or crypto Twitter. Yeah. Look up. I get I get pinged a lot by people around regulation. Um, 
I, I'll make two observations. One, I think you're seeing um, a bifurcation in a camp that is taking advantage of opportunity to attract capital formation and bright uh, individuals and teams. And you're seeing that in Europe with Mika, you're seeing it in the UK, you're seeing it in some Caribbean islands, seeing it in Dubai, Hong Kong, uh, not so much in the US by particular agencies. Particular agencies, and I will say, the second, which leads me to my second observation, which is we should not think about the US and cluster it and make generalization because it is a very divided opinion on what one or a few agencies have portrayed this asset class in this industry versus general sentiment out there. Mm-hmm. And the third, I guess I, I cheat, but the third observation is we should not lose faith in the court system because that is the backbone of a democracy, of a, of, of a developed country, I think, which is what is most interesting and important at this point in time is the interpretation the courts will have on the opinion of, a, of agencies, particularly the SEC, on this industry. And there's the Ripple case. There is the, the, the uh, Grayscale ETF case, right? Grayscale suing the SEC. Um, and then there's also, perhaps more importantly, the Coinbase case. And so I think all of those three and the early indications, as I interpreted as not a lawyer, but uh, for that, I will save it for the interpretation in our regulatory podcast with Rebecca and Jake. But I have faith in the court system and interpreting the law correctly and the oversight and the regulation, the policy that needs to be shaped in this industry, but at the same time in a measured way that is pro-innovation. And I think that marries really nicely with the political landscape going into the election next year in the U.S. And so if you don't have faith in the court system, then good luck. I mean, you have bigger problems on your hands. Like crypto is just one, but it, it will, you know, as soon as you lose the courts, then I think a democracy fails uh, because if you're not going to respect the law, then you go elsewhere, right? Mm. And that just becomes anarchy. And so ultimately that degrades the democracy. But I think I still have faith that. I think the, the court system in the U.S. is perhaps the best or second best, right? Perhaps the, the court legal system in the U.K. is probably more international over trade. But in the U.S., I think it's 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 very solid and strong, and I have faith in that. So, uh, yeah, I think ultimately I'm 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 encouraged, and I, I we've been talking about regulation for a long time, um, and you know I think these three cases are going to really shape the the way that we finally can construct some some policy that is helpful, and it might just come down to where Europe leads the way, and then the U.S. copies it. This has happened before, time time again over time, like the U.K really has shaped uh, financial policy in a very meaningful way over the last like century or so. Like they, they were first to adopt and create a framework for uh, gold ETFs. And then the U.S. kind of followed suit after they had like banned and really been in opposition to this. So I think we'll probably see a similar, um, similar path here. Yeah, I agree. Well, better put than I could do it. I, this is so left curve, but I think a big part of politics hopefully going forward is you have um, what I'd say is a younger generation, whether it's millennials, Gen Z, et cetera, that are coming into that, you know, being a, a larger and larger percentage of that voting class um, and obviously brought up in the digital economy and probably more favorable to something like crypto and, mm. and open to those things. And I think that'll be a pretty big shift just over time. Yeah. It's literally like the age gap. It's kind of, it's kind of surreal that most of the country is like a uh, shift. You know, it's obviously yeah, the, the, voter ba- the voter base is young. Right, yeah. it's up 50, 40, but most of the country is run by people that are in their 80s, and so yeah. it's 70s and 80s. Going on 90. 
<laughs> yeah, it's difficult. But hey, look, I mean, Chad, like uh, one of our first investors in, in Parafone was like Henry Kravitz. Like the guy was old, doesn't use a smartphone, but he understands asset classes. Like, you know, not all people that are 80 and 90 like are, are against technology and innovation. So, you know, I think uh, this is why it's important to step back and understand like this is something that is being used. It's something that the younger generation certainly like likes and skews because they don't have any semblance of what a bank is and they just like spending time in the digital world and this technology you know acutely enables the possibility to do stuff and extend the range of possibility in the digital context so that's it like it's really that like let's not overthink it guys like let's just create like nice rules and boundaries so that it makes it a safe environment for most and if you don't do that and you don't come up with guidance there's going to be nefarious activity because people always profit on the on ambiguity and lack of clarity which is difficult and and I think hopefully that's really the resounding message, which is come up with some guidance and, and clear framework because, you know, that's what is allowing and that's the vector that allows for, you know, unfortunately scams and all this stuff, right? I mean, it's not going to stop all of them altogether. You always see scams. Like there's always a subset of humans that want to do like scammy stuff and you're going to catch them faster in a transparent system. I'll tell you that. Definitely agree. So Santi, anything else you want to talk about or you think we ought to wrap it up? Well, I don't think so. I mean, I think we've covered a lot. Um, maybe things that we're looking forward to. Just uh, I know we're probably entering like a slower part of the cycle, like of the year. I guess summer tends to be, you know, a period where it's a bit quiet. But uh, things that you're looking forward to. I mean, I'm paying a lot of attention on account abstraction and some of the developments there. And I think it fits nicely with kind of how people think about like securing their assets and interacting on chain and whatnot. But I'm curious if you are following certain things that are. Uh, you're launching your own podcast, of course, or you launch your own podcast. It's amazing to see. Yeah, to uh, I'm curious. yeah. yeah. Uh, I, yeah. I won't shill yet. I won't shill yet. I'm going to give like what I'm watching. Not necessarily like things that I'm like bullish on, but things that I'm interested in. So like we just had a season on uh, Bell Curve about MEV. And I think we could have probably done like 10 more episodes. I think that space is just so interesting. I mean, I remember two years ago, and I'm sure some people say this now, like MEV is going to be the death of crypto. Um, in some ways. And and now people are more or less like embracing it, but they're just trying to find a way to stop almost the centralization and like the verticalization of that supply chain because there's so there's so many incentives to do that. But anyway, I think it's wildly exciting and Hasu talks about it here and, and it's kind of gotten me on this this wave of wanting to study more about MEV. I think the other thing that's going to be like a narrative that gets passed around and probably has already started is like soft versus hard finality. And by that, I'm talking about like an L2 versus an L1. So like on an L2, you can get like a soft confirmation immediately from the sequencer saying that like, yes, you've made this trade, but it's not truly like, and that could be called soft finality, but it's not truly like hard finality or firm finality. People have different names for it until it hits the L1. And that's, you're already seeing this trend. We had an episode recently with shared sequencers um, and we know how, how difficult that could be. And I think there's going to be a big push for the soft finality and what do you need for that to count like will users care most probably not um but will developers and will like the the owners of these eco or the builders of these ecosystems um and I, th I think part of it too and this is me being a little less crypto than i should be probably but a lot of this people think we can control with economic weight so if you have shared sequencers they can stake and if they do something mm -hmm. um, wrong you can slash them and i think that's true but i also know there's gonna be a scalable model which is just reputations like you're gonna have yeah. a shared sequencer group on certain l2s and this is a cool thing with l2s you get to pick where you want to play right like um, but you could have a semi-centralized, decentralized group of sequencers or these people that have to put up some form of ID and eventually maybe that could be centralized ID. But I just think reputation is like such a scalable model and you can have that backed up with slashing. But today that's all we really talk about is like economic weight 
and slashing mm-hmm. these sequencers and like soft finality. But I think reputation will become a bigger and bigger thing. And that's something yeah. like I'm, I'm going to be looking into. Yeah, it fits nicely with the overall construct here, which is the you have many flavors of choice, L1s, L2s. And ultimately, you know, I guess it is fair to say that to your point, many end users will not appreciate security. Don't today. Uh, the prime example is that like a lot of people went to Binance Smart Chain uh, when it launched and went to PancakeSwap at some point, had more users and trades than Uniswap. So I'm not, you know, I am mindful of that. But at the same time, I think when you think about how this space, or kind of you mentioned Ben uh, from Stratechery, he has an aggregation theory, which I think is going to play out in crypto as well, which is your financial institution like JP Morgan will decide to interact on chain at some point because it will streamline their back office compliance. It will make, and this is an area that they want to cut because it, it, it's bloated. They want to find ways to streamline and increase margin. And this is a very good way to do that by using blockchains. And so if you believe that to be true, think especially with regulation and clarity coming, then they're going to interact on chain, right? Mm. And smart contracts and atomic executions of mortgages and whatever, like, and, and so ultimately they will be sophisticated enough to appreciate security and a lot of these things, and the user is going to trust them. There's always trust. Yep. Full stop. You're always going to trust someone, um, and and delegate that trust to your financial institution, your aggregator. And I think that's why it's important to understand this because I think that will really shape the next iteration of how pro- of protocol development and things that really get traction and get hardened over time with true Lindy. And you know, if you have JP Morgan using Ethereum or a particular L2, you know, that increases liquidity and liquidity begets more liquidity and then it becomes more efficient. Think about Curve and why Curve became so important because they got liquidity. And as soon as you hit a certain threshold, it's very, it's very circuitous. And, and so it's very reinforcing. And that is really the boat here. Um, and so it's really nice that we have all these different kind of possibilities, which is nice in an open source context. We have really low barriers to entry. People can come and go. People can use a lot of these chains and we're all experimenting in some way, shape or form. Um, and so I'm constantly reminded of that. And this is why I kind of take this approach of like, try different things, um, and experiment, because I think that's the phase that we are on as an industry right now, the next five years, I think we'll continue on this trajectory of trying different things, trying to decentralize sequencers, trying to watch maybe right got the good security and see if that works or blows shit up. Um, and then ultimately when you see kind of the, the next real wave and onboarding of these aggregators that are going to open up and miss the space to so many other users and i think a large part of that will be games um yep. and then and, and then DeFi, but, but but certainly games then i think it gets really interesting then i think you really can mm. understand okay they're going to use ethereum or they're going to use solana or they're going to use something else that maybe we haven't seen before maybe it's coinbase base right uh i think coinbase base probably yeah is the one that i'm probably thinking that is going to attract uh, the first hundred million dollars hundred million users on chain yep so yeah, I think uh, I'm really excited. I'm, I'm, you know, just be patient. Yeah. If you listen to this podcast, you're out of the game. I've been listening to it now for two years. So uh, Santi had me listen to it before I joined. I probably said this on the podcast, but it was Santi that read um, the producer position that got me on this. So I owe a lot to you, Sonny. No. Hey, well, yeah. you're great, man. So uh, I, I, every episode we come out with, I've been doing more and more reading and, and podcasts. So I'll do shout out to one book that I'm reading, which is, is so like, the title is so like cheesy, I guess, and cliche, but it's called How to Invest. Okay. 
I don't know how to be a billionaire. <laughs> yeah, how to get rich and lose weight. No, uh, <laughs> no, it doesn't promise the formula, but it's just um, it's by David Rubenstein, the co-founder of Carlisle, which I think is a legend, and uh, he has a he interviews some of the most successful investors across a number of different asset classes: distressed debt, private equity, hedge funds, um, endowments, and how to invest is just a collection of interviews with. From people like Stan Druckenmiller, which we've talked about in this episode, to John Paulson, to you know the Soros fund, uh, the Soros kind of family office uh, chief investment officer, just a bunch of people, right? And it's every chapter is fairly short, but different perspective on uh, Jim Simmons from like uh, what's this fund, uh, Renaissance, um, mm. uh, Seth Klarman, uh, like just legendary investors, really nice book. So it's how to invest, masters on the craft, really nice. Um, I, I've been enjoying it, haven't finished it, but. I've taken really good snippets. Um, and then, uh, obviously, the go and listen to the Stan Druckenmiller uh, interview. Uh, it's on YouTube. Um, the Sound Conference. There's two. Maybe listen to both. The one from last year and this year. And uh, the snippet from that is like, he's like, this is the hardest time to invest from someone who's been doing it in the most successful fashion over the last, like, 60 years or so. Uh, maybe like 40 years, 50. Like, when you listen to someone like that say that, it's like okay gotta listen that's uh yeah <laughs> so anyways uh I've, I've been really enjoying those two i don't know if you have uh maybe a movie or a book that you really enjoyed recently yeah i'm gonna have to check those out um uh, for me i'm reading one that sounds like classic crypto finance person about how the internet how the internet was made i i, I read it once how, is it, it how the internet happened that's right see so, yeah, oh. you, you, know, you know better than me because i've gifted that book it's probably the given book that i've recommended the most for people that want to learn about crypto, how the internet happened? Is that how oh, you... that that book really? Yeah, it's it, it's honestly so good. I, I'm I'm probably like one third of the way through, but it it to me it's just like especially someone that works in crypto. There's just so many similarities uh, between the two, and I I think like going back and learning those that part of history and even crypto two years ago can help you so much and like shape how things have been set today. So I do that. I got to give one that's like the opposite this is very like trap bro ish um have you seen workaholics or ever heard of it back in the day um they have a podcast called um this is important and it's the five main characters who just actually happen to be best friends and they record now 10 years later every tuesday and that is just gonna be a pretty hilarious one so uh i watched air i'll add air i watched air the other day and that was it was a cool show air nike it's like nike's new film oh on amazon. oh wow it's out that's awesome yeah yeah you can stream it on amazon i think it was in theaters and then it'll go live like on other places i think in a few months i thought you're gonna say succession but no hey i'll, I'll check that out for sure check it out okay before we log off i gotta finally do my my shilling so uh, there we go there's always some <laughs> shilling not gonna be permissionless <laughs> no token not so. gonna be the cheesy way to jay you better do it better than jason because he does some, some, some... yeah i have to cut it all out most of the time um okay so believe it or not i am starting a podcast called Lightspeed with someone named Mert, who Mert is uh, started Helios, which is like the main leading API and RPC provider in the Solana ecosystem. Uh, we've been talking about this podcast for months. I had no idea that I was going to be the one to co-host it, but I, I honestly like couldn't be more psyched. Um, and like at the end of the day, we, we really need real products solving real problems. We've been talking about that in this podcast and things that are like uniquely enabled by crypto. And that's more or less what this podcast is going to focus on. Um, I love like the Steve Jobs quote where it's like, start with the user experience and work back to the technology, um, not the other way around. And I think and sometimes in crypto, you know, we might start with like the philosophy and not with like the tech part or the user 
Um, and that's something we want to highlight ecosystems and people and projects that are doing that. Um, super excited to host this with Mert. He, he knows a ton about the Solana ecosystem. So we're sure definitely going to cover, cover projects there, but like we're going to cover many, many ecosystems, projects, founders. Um, I say we want it to be the shelling point for those most innovative, innovative communities. So I'm going to rug pull empire there. Um, wow. talk, <laughs> I have to, I have to I go like for it. it. I have to go for if it. If that um, happens, I'll be happy. Just don't stop ever doing the show notes. They're amazing. Yeah. Ah. And by, you know, we talked about trajectory and Ben Thompson, like my inspiration for this, and we'll see how I do is to take Stratechery meets my first million pod, which is more or less about like business and coming up with new ideas, but it's like super entertaining uh, and making that light speed. So I'm super pumped about it. We just did our announcement today and the first episode is going to go live in June. So um, I'll put a link to the show notes for the Twitter. Um, you're not going to be able to listen to anything because it's not there yet. But yeah, we're super excited. That's awesome. Well, I'm really excited for you guys. I think you're going to crush it. I, uh, and, and it's a great duo. So best of luck to you, sir. Sweet, Santi. Well, hey, Santi, uh, thanks for having me on. This is great. Yeah, Jason, if you don't go back from your honeymoon, which is a possible scenario, <laughs> well, Garrett, your permanence, uh, you're always welcome back. So anyways, uh, thanks everyone for listening. Hope you have uh, a great weekend, uh, wherever you're listening from, and we'll see you here next week. <laughs>